You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find out more at youcan'tbeneutral.com. There you'll find all of the back episodes, and you'll find a link there to send me a message. You'll also find a link there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is the statement by Answer, National Director Brian Becker, on the self-immolation of U.S. Airman Aaron Bushnell at the Israeli Embassy in Washington, D.C. You can find this posted at answercoalition.org. The decision by U.S. Airman Aaron Bushnell to set himself on fire in front of the Israeli Embassy while condemning the U.S.-backed Israeli genocide being carried out against the people of Gaza was a desperate act designed to arouse public outrage. He made the ultimate personal sacrifice to end a genocide that the entire world has been witnessing for the past months. This was an act of martyrdom by a U.S. service member who was outraged by the actions of a government that speaks in his name. Aaron said as he set himself on fire, I will not be complicit with genocide. His actions cannot but remind one of the self-immolation of 22-year-old anti-war activist Norman Morrison, who doused himself in kerosene and set himself on fire below the office of then-Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara at the Pentagon to protest the escalating genocidal war waged by the United States against the people of Vietnam. Six months before Norman Morrison took his own life, President Lyndon Johnson had authorized the mass use of napalm against the people of Vietnam and escalated the carpet bombing that was killing thousands of civilians each week. Morrison's act was also in line with the self-immolation protests carried out by Buddhist monks in South Vietnam to protest the South Vietnamese puppet government. Daniel Ellsberg witnessed Norman Morrison's self-immolation. He was horrified and cited it along with the mass anti-war protests sweeping the country as one of the factors that affected him deeply as he moved into active opposition to the war. He ultimately released the Pentagon Papers to the media, which revealed that the U.S. government had been lying about the Vietnam War for a decade. People all over the United States in the millions have been involved in mass actions to protest the U.S. support for Israeli genocide against the Palestinian people in recent months. People have also engaged in civil disobedience actions of many types. Many have been arrested and are facing trial, including many whose constitutional rights were violated by violent police repression. Aaron Bushnell's action is a reflection, an indicator, a marker of the profound change in consciousness in the United States. The previously dominant narrative that backed the Israeli apartheid government is dramatically giving way to a narrative based on the truth that the Palestinian people have been the victims of dispossession 
ethnic cleansing, violence of all types, and now a genocidal killing spree in Gaza. And people in the United States and around the world are horrified and are mobilizing on multiple fronts in support of Palestine. Aaron Bushnell's sacrifice takes place on the eve of a planned invasion of Rafah by the Israeli military. People all over the United States are coming together on March 2nd for mass actions in cities and towns across the United States as part of a global day of protest demanding no invasion of Rafah, a ceasefire to end the Israeli killing spree, and the lifting of the siege of Gaza. We send our sympathy and solidarity to Aaron Bushnell's family and loved ones. He has made the ultimate sacrifice in a quest for justice and in solidarity with the oppressed people of Palestine. Next up is a piece published at CrimeThink.com. Memories of Aaron Bushnell, as recounted by his friends. On February 25, Aaron Bushnell set himself on fire at the gate of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., as an act of protest against the ongoing genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. Hostile critics have attempted to shrug off Aaron's action as a consequence of mental illness. On the contrary, Aaron's choice was a political action arising from his deeply held anarchist convictions. In the following collection, we share Aaron's own summary of his politics, followed by testimony from three of Aaron's close friends. As Aaron recounted to his comrades in a mutual aid group in San Antonio, he grew up in a very Christian conservative white enclave in Cape Cod. He was 18 years old when Donald Trump was elected. He joined the Air Force in 2019. While in the Air Force, he arrived at anarchist politics through a process of self-education. In February 2023, Aaron prepared a document aimed at helping this group to become more cohesive. As another participant in the group told us, quote, Aaron sought to formalize and mature some of our organizing methods, and he felt that having deep and open discussion was a crucial first step for building long-term trust. He created a list of questions as a way of, for our ragtag group of lefties doing mutual aid to start a conversation with each other. In his own answers to these questions, Aaron states, quote, I'm an anarchist, which means I believe in the abolition of all hierarchical power structures, especially capitalism and the state. I view the work we do as fighting back in the class war, which a capitalist class wages on the rest of humanity. This also informs the way in which I want to organize, as I believe that any hierarchical power structure is bound to reproduce class dynamics and oppression. Thus, I want to engage in egalitarian forms of organizing that produce horizontal power structures based on mutual aid and solidarity, which are capable of liberating humans. I favor consensus-based decision-making over democratic or voting-based governance. In the same document, Aaron explained why he was committed to doing mutual aid work in solidarity with the unhoused. I've always been bothered by the reality of homelessness, even back when I was growing up in a conservative community. I've come to believe in the importance of solidarity politics, and I view the enforcement of homelessness as a major front in the class war, which must be challenged for all our sakes. I view helping my houseless neighbors as a moral obligation, 
a matter of social justice, and a matter of good politics. If I don't stand with those more marginalized than me today, then who will be left to stand with me tomorrow? I view enforced homelessness as a societal failing and a crime against humanity. I believe that no one deserves to be deprived of basic human necessities. I believe that homelessness, as an involuntary condition, must be abolished. In the following three accounts, Aaron's friends share their memories of who he was and how his life touched their lives. If you wish to do something in Aaron's memory, one option is to donate to the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, which he mentioned in his will. Aaron will live forever. Lupe Aaron will live forever. I know this because everyone who was loved by Aaron will carry a bit of him in their soul, and everyone who witnessed his sacrifice will carry him in their minds. Aaron cherished life. He knew that in giving up his own, he could give the people of Palestine a chance to keep theirs. Aaron has permanently changed the fabric of your being. You know this because for the rest of your life, you will wrestle with the thought of what you will sacrifice for the liberation of others. My friend said that everywhere Aaron went, he planted trees. I imagine these seeds planted in our hearts and minds. They will sprout and they will grow into giant strong trees with deep roots, built to weather the many battles that lie ahead on this burning planet. They will remain upright like Aaron did until they no longer can, but by then their own seeds will have been planted in the hearts of our loved ones, and they will grow into trees as well. They will continue this struggle till the beautiful world that Aaron knew we deserved is born. He was someone we really needed. T-Bear It seems a lot of people just saw Aaron as someone in the military. Online lefties and liberal media alike were quick to dispose of his words and actions and choose instead to judge him based on puritanical ideals just as bad as the ones he's been trying to escape his entire adult life. I write this knowing it will be read by comrades. I want to say something profound that can make us reflect on why we have such a tendency to be so quick to treat others as disposable, but I don't think I can. I hope that instead you will carry the burden of finding an answer to that with me. After a lifetime of engaging with anarchists, it was this recently radicalized 25-year-old active-duty airman I spent two years with who showed me my chains, long before his decision to leave this earth. Aaron had this effect on every single person he met. He was incredibly committed to developing relationships based on deep trust and understanding. It would be the first to give you the raised brows for a snarky answer to an important question. He never let a potential harm go unaddressed. He embodied more than anyone I know the anarchist spirit, that deeply human sentiment which aims at the good of all, freedom and justice for all, solidarity and love among the people. He was someone we really needed here. I encourage you to remember Aaron's words and actions the next time you're about to flatten someone's lived experiences. I encourage you to reflect on your relationships and how you can reduce control and coercive power dynamics. I encourage you to build deeper and ever deeper bonds with your comrades. Honor them now, 
It's not worth losing them. My friend Aaron. E. My friend Aaron was kind, compassionate, and principled, sometimes to the point of being annoying. And he was incredibly reflective and willing to change to meet my needs in our relationship. He was one of my quickest and best friends. I loved Aaron deeply. I have few regrets from my relationship with him. I was consistently vulnerable and open, which he returned in kind. I told him all the things I felt for him and often. I spent as much time with him as I possibly could, and I'm very grateful that I did. What I am most afraid of in this moment is that our relationship, our friendship, the deep, deep love I had for him, all of the little intimate moments, the bits, the laughs, the facts about his takes, all of it, I am afraid to be the only person holding that knowledge. I don't want it to disappear. I don't want it to be held only by me and my fallible memory. I just want people to know that I loved him. Cult I want to provide some background context on Aaron's life. He shared this with me in confidence, but I feel okay sharing it with you all now because he is gone and I want to help contextualize him for you all. The press has also reached out to people from his past, so it will be coming out regardless, and I think it's better y'all learn from a comrade. Aaron was raised in a cult, a Christian sect and self-styled monastery called the Community of Jesus. In this cult, as is a quality of many cults, Aaron was kept busy constantly from a very young age. Through working as unpaid labor, engaging in intensive training for performance arts programs organized by the community, or engaging in worship. This traumatized him deeply, partially because he had to maintain that while grappling with his neurodivergence that interfered with his ability to perform tasks well. He had to learn to mask very young and felt that his childhood was stolen from him. As a teenager, he had to work every day at multiple jobs one summer in order to make enough money to pay superfluous fees for a performance arts program he was required to be in. Everything at the community of Jesus was motivated by shame and guilt and the threat of ostracization. This affected him deeply and fundamentally shaped how he could and could not engage in building relationships with people. It is the reason he left SACC. San Antonio Collective Care, for his own protection. I was incredibly lucky to have been able to forge the relationship I did with him. Being raised in a cult, essentially a small society with different cultural norms than ours, gave Aaron the ability to see and better identify the norms and qualities of our society that are harder for us to see because we have been conditioned within it. He could see the latent fascist logic and cult-like tendencies that we swim through every day. He could see and feel them in ways that I struggle to feel and understand beyond an intellectual level. He was always very cagey about his past and did his best not to lie. You may recall him saying things like, sort of, or something like that, whenever he was asked questions about being in theater or band. When Aaron lived there, he was a full believer, engaging in all of the shaming rituals and cycles of harm. He was completely invested in that reality. 
The fact that he was able to escape that ideology and the visceral experience of the shattering of that worldview was one of the things that made him so incredibly principled and dedicated to the abolition of hierarchy. Times he changed and reflected. We would text, and I would accuse him of texting like a straight man, which he was. He would never use reaction emojis or punctuation or expressions of laughter like LOL. It was incredibly annoying. He made such an active effort to do those things after I asked him to, very quickly and consistently. Once Aaron and I were having a discussion, a political one, about the ethics of eating and producing meat. As a former vegan, I had many takes, as did he. At one point, the conversation got to plants, and Aaron expressed that he thought of plants as nothing more than biological machines completely devoid of life, or at least the essence, that makes something morally valuable and worth protecting, like sentient animals. I was honestly very shocked. I told him he was wrong, in more words than that, and told him to read Braiding Sweetgrass, kind of in the way you tell people to read books, but never actually expect them to. Our conversation seemed to weigh heavily on him. It came up a few more times over the following weeks. On his drive up to Ohio, he listened to Braiding Sweetgrass, and he was texting me about it. He really, really liked it. I think it reshaped some of his worldview. Principled. Aaron saw hierarchy and injustice and his role in those systems and hated it. He felt a lot of guilt because of the situation he was raised in. Guilt was the primary emotion through which he engaged with most things. I feel very sad that he was not able to heal from that fully before this. He had so much love for his cats. The contradictions of owning someone you love weighed on him heavily. He was constantly thinking of how to best accommodate them and navigate this relationship of domination, complete control over their agency. I saw how it genuinely distressed him. Aaron refused to say words like crazy, insane, or lame due to their roots in ableism, and he got on me for my use of the word lame constantly. He wouldn't say the word fuck, because he saw its roots in misogyny and heteropatriarchy. Aaron also didn't like the word democracy for reasons that are too long to explain. We would argue about it a lot. It was kind of a recurring bit. Aaron deleted Signal before he self-immolated, a last act of security and love for his comrades. Excerpts I was very vulnerable and open with Aaron, and I am proud of that. Vulnerability builds trust and deepens our bonds with each other. It is something that I actively work to cultivate in myself. To that end, I would like to share excerpts from two things I wrote to Aaron. Quote, All of our relationships change us, shape us. When I look at the people, the friends who I love the most, the people who I have the most secure loving relationships with, I can mark the ways that they have changed me. The mannerisms, habits, forms of speech, or worldviews that I adopted from them. It makes me feel so proud and thankful. There is no doubt that you have already changed me in ways that I'll be proud and thankful for, but I feel that one of the things that hurts most is mourning the loss of the ways that you could change me. I wish you could know more. There are so many things I want to know about you and so many other things I want you to know about me. 
I wish I could get to see firsthand your continuing political development, and I wish we could have closer impacts on each other's development. I wish you could see mine to change it and to make me into a better revolutionary. I want to see you in struggle, to learn how to struggle next to you and to struggle with you. I want you to be here. I keep imagining you here. Upon reflecting, I am imagining you here, but not as I know you. I am imagining you here and free. Free of your military indenturement. It brings me so much joy to imagine you free and in struggle. To imagine your joy. Conclusion I think it will be hard to grieve this loss without being able to be with his body. To not get to experience the physical and psychological effects of being with his body after he's gone. I am feeling tiny and crushed by the magnitude and inertia of the systems we are fighting against. I feel tiny and helpless in the face of these systems that have existed for hundreds of years and will likely exist for hundreds more. I normally feel quite the opposite, but right now I feel so small. How in this world do we find peace that is not complicity? I hope Aaron found his. But the outpouring of support and parallel grief from you all and my comrades around the country has been immense, and I am truly in awe. I used to tell Aaron about how sometimes I would get overcome with awe and love to the point of crying while thinking about my comrades. Y'all's support has moved me to tears many times in the past few days. I don't have words to express how much I love you all. I am just in constant and pure awe. I want to end with two things, some of the words from Aaron's will and a poem that he had been practicing to recite once he was out of the military. From Aaron's will, quote, I am sorry to my brother and my friends for leaving you like this. Of course, if I was truly sorry, I wouldn't be doing it. But the machine demands blood. None of this is fair. I wish for my remains to be cremated. I do not wish for my ashes to be scattered or my remains to be buried, as my body does not belong anywhere in this world. If a time comes when Palestinians regain control of their land, and if the people native to the land would be open to the possibility, I would love for my ashes to be scattered in a free Palestine. The Empire Raised Me, a poem from Anansi's library. I was a soldier for her before I knew her name, raised to die before I fully knew mine. Crafted by hand for eternal war, raised for combat as the Empire's ward. I was raised a soldier, I was built for bowing down, to drop to my knees and worship at the sound of blood money capital and oil king's crown. Obey our enforcers, pray for our flag, our god is the state, and war is her ballad. And you were raised a soldier, stay your tongue, child, keep silent, I beg. Don't you know that our God can look into your head, see thoughts and images, fears and dread, and shape it all into will? Ask too many questions, look through the fog, set truth to deception and raise up the mob. Fight for real justice and soon you will see the beauty of our weapons pointed straight at you and me. 
In the end, this state knows no loyalty, for we were both raised soldiers. Peer through the windows and watch every street. Heed George Jackson's words. Watch the pigs and never sleep. A muslin tall grass, a flashbang in the dark, bombs for the masses. Soon the fires will start. A stalker in the nighttime, a predator, a drone, tear gas and flames. Jack boots in your home. Door-to-door searches, to your knees dropping, a tone. Fearful and wordless, we all look on towards the burning of Rome. This can only progress towards panic in the streets, police violence and unrest, desperate riots to escape the cruelty, while the guilt is placed square on the shoulders of those in need. Fighting for justice is the greatest of sins, punished by death since the empire began. And I was raised a soldier. Now the muzzle is at my back. The boots are at my door. The guns are all racked. And like my ancestors before, a hail of bullets will set me free. Express one day delivery from your state god to thee. Expect from your lord no loyalty. For I was raised a soldier. Next up is a piece published at nplus1mag.com, written by Aaron Baker. Eventually, the nerves will burn, and the flames eating at the skin won't feel like anything at all. Soon, a place beyond sensation altogether. Torrents of adrenaline, a brain relieving itself of duty. But not at first. Quote, I think initially you're talking about the most excruciating pain that you could ever experience, one expert says. Often there are accelerants which produce a hotter, deeper flame. For most people who perish, however, it is the smoke inhalation rather than the heat that is the proximate cause. They choke to death on the fumes of their own flesh. Immolation seems like an atavism. Entrails burnt on altars. Witches burnt at the stake. Huts burnt to ashes by stray sparks leaping from the hearth. It's not the kind of thing that should happen these days. Our civilization is built on combustion, the relentless extraction and incineration of ever-expanding quantities of fuel. But it is a controlled burn. In the U.S., total deaths from fire and burning declined steadily and significantly over the course of the 20th century, a trend paralleled in much of the rest of the world in recent decades. Building materials are safer, open flames are less necessary for lighting and heating, and fire response infrastructures are more robust. For most of us, most of the time, fire is innocuous, confined to stovetops and grills and lighters. There is one important exception. Beginning in World War I, modern warfare has vastly multiplied the range of available methods for burning people to death. Bullets still have their place, of course, and more ancient tactics of siege and starvation, but wars since the early 20th century have probably lit more people on fire than all prior military conflicts in human history. Like so many fires, it happens slowly at first and then all at once. 
shortly after the German army debuted the modern flamethrower in the trenches of the Western Front. The weapon became standard in the arsenals of militaries worldwide. But it was a cumbersome and inflexible device and made easy targets. So in World War II, its use was mostly limited to dismantling fortifications, suffocating troops entrenched in caves, and exterminating captive civilian populations, as in the Nazi suppression of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. By that point, more efficient immolation delivery devices were widely available. World War II was when firebombing really came into its own, after more experimental deployment earlier in the century. The Luftwaffe rained down fire on Warsaw and London. The Allies later retaliated by burning most large German cities to the ground. The British developed a bomb they called the Superflamer, which upon detonation emitted a sphere of intense fire in a 15-foot radius that burned for at least two minutes without flagging. In the final months of the war, Japan was one great conflagration. On one awful night in March 1945, U.S. bombers burned 100,000 residents of Tokyo to death and left a million more homeless. And then came August. Quote, The impact of the bomb was so terrific that practically all living things, human and animal, were literally seared to death by the tremendous heat and pressure set up by the blast. Tokyo Radio reported after the first nuclear weapon was dropped on Hiroshima. Over time, the sci-fi novelty of other features of nuclear explosions came to eclipse the fact that the main thing they do is ignite tremendous fires. Daniel Ellsberg later recalled that estimates of the death toll from a U.S. nuclear first strike prepared by the Joint Chiefs of Staff excluded the consequences of firestorms on the specious grounds that their course was difficult to predict precisely. In Ellsberg's own assessment, taking firestorms into account would have doubled the official estimate to over a billion people dead. As it turned out, the Cold War's superpowers managed to avoid deploying additional nuclear weapons, except in 2,121 documented tests. But incineration proceeded apace. The United States dropped 32,557 tons of napalm on North Korea between 1950 and 1953. Quote, We went over there and fought the war and eventually burned down every town in North Korea. U.S. Strategic Air Commander Curtis LeMay later said, estimating that his forces killed 20% of the North Korean population. Ten times as much napalm torched the peasantry of Vietnam in the 1960s and 1970s. We will likely never know exactly how many thousands of people burned to death. There were also survivors, such as Phan Thi Kim Phuc, the girl in the photo, who regained the ability to move properly a full decade after her entire back was scorched by South Vietnamese napalm at nine years of age. Eventually, the U.S. phased out napalm in favor of an ostensibly new fuel mix carried in MK-77 bombs, which in its practical effects is essentially the same thing as napalm. At least 30 MK-77s were dropped on Iraq in 2003 alone, including in civilian-populated areas in Baghdad. 
The U.S. has also extensively deployed ultra-incendiary white phosphorus weapons in its military campaigns since the mid-20th century, most infamously in Fallujah in 2004. Likely the most enthusiastic user of white phosphorus today is Israel. Despite years of controversy and chastisement from human rights groups, Israel has used these munitions yet again in its ongoing genocidal operation in Gaza and its concurrent attacks on southern Lebanon. Its more conventional explosives inflict their fair share of burns as well. In November, Medicine Sans Frontieres reported that its burn surgeons in one hospital in Khan Yunus were performing about 10 operations each day, even though the hospital was, quote, overflowing with hundreds of patients with burns who must wait for surgical care. This is all, in theory, illegal. International law has sought to curb attacks on civilians since the burned-out aftermath of World War II and half-hearted restrictions on the use of incendiary weapons in particular have obtained since the early 1980s. But the age of immolation has also seen the U.S. and many other global powers abandon any pretense of legal or democratic oversight of military activity, an embrace of lawlessness enabled in large part by the increasing significance of aerial bombardment and contemporary warfare. Incendiary weapons are typically launched by planes and missiles and drones, which means that those who launch them seek surprise and therefore secrecy. Their use does not demand the conspicuous massing of troops that infantry-based operations entail. A phone is dialed, a button is pushed, and suddenly the world is aflame. Incineration has become a perfect military machine. Precious few humans involved, except those who are burned. On March 16, 1965, Alice Hers set herself on fire at the intersection of Grand River Avenue and Oakman Boulevard in Detroit. Nine days earlier, Lyndon Johnson had authorized the use of napalm in Vietnam. A Christian socialist of Jewish ancestry, Hers had fled the Nazis and settled in Michigan during the war, although she was denied U.S. citizenship due to her refusal to vow to defend the nation with arms. She expired of her injuries on March 26 at the age of 82. The Detroit Free Press's headline read, quote, Human sacrifice is dead of burns. On November 2, 1965, a Quaker anti-war activist named Norman Morrison took his daughter Emily to the Pentagon. Standing beneath Robert McNamara's office, he handed Emily to someone nearby, doused himself in kerosene, and struck a match. Roger Allen Laporte, a member of Dorothy Day's Catholic Worker Movement, and a former seminarian emulated Morrison a week later in front of the United Nations building in New York. As he burned, Laporte sat in the same lotus position assumed by Thich Quan Duc during his 1963 self-immolation in protest of the persecution of Buddhists by the regime of Ngo Dinh Diem, the United States' first puppet in its struggle against the Viet Cong. In all, at least 100 people set themselves on fire in the U.S. and Vietnam to protest the war. After a long history on multiple continents as a tool of protest against religious persecution, the precedent on which Khan Duc was drawing, 
these self-immolations cemented a new association in American culture between the tactic and anti-war activism. In February 1991, during the first U.S. war in Iraq, Gregory Levy doused himself in paint thinner and perished in a fireball in a park in Amherst, Massachusetts, leaving behind a small cardboard sign that read simply, Peace. Malachi Richer, an experimental musician in Chicago, set himself on fire on the side of the Kennedy Expressway during the morning rush hour one Friday in November 2006, after posting a long statement on his website explaining that he felt that there was no other way for him to escape complicity with the barbaric war the U.S. was then waging. He had been arrested at two previous anti-war protests. Scholars often associate the rise of political self-immolation in the 1960s with the rise of television, a spectacular form of protest for the society of the spectacle. But of course there are less painful ways for protesters to attract eyeballs. The reality is that self-immolation registers the near-total impotence of protest, and even public opinion as such, in the face of a military apparatus completely insulated from external accountability. It is the rawest testament to the absence of effective courses of action. When war consists primarily of unelected men in undisclosed locations pouring fire on the heads of people we will never know, on the other side of the world, there is very little that ordinary people can do to arrest its progress. But we still have our bodies, and it is in the nature of fire to refuse containment. To ask whether self-immolation is good or bad, justifiable or non-justifiable, effective or ineffective, is in large part to miss the point, which is that it is an option, whether anyone else likes it or not. It illuminates our powerlessness in negative space, but it also affirms the irreducible core of our freedom, that small flame of agency that no repression can extinguish. Since Aaron Bushnell's death by self-immolation this week in protest of Israel's genocide in Gaza, his detractors have warned about the risk of contagion, suggesting that his protest will encourage imitators who they imply share his alleged mental instability. There may or may not be additional self-immolators before the slaughter comes to an end, just as Bushnell was preceded by a woman, yet to be identified publicly, who burned herself outside the Israeli consulate in Atlanta in December. But the purpose of lighting yourself on fire is not to encourage other people to light themselves on fire. It is to scream to the world, that you could find no alternative. And in that respect, it is a challenge to the rest of us to prove with our own freedom that there are other ways to meaningfully resist a society whose cruelty has become intolerable. Aaron Bushnell posted an explanation of his actions on Facebook shortly before his death. Many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do if I was alive during slavery, he wrote. It is a vexing question. Most comfortable white Americans who were alive during slavery, after all, do not think of themselves as being alive, quote, during slavery, even as its presence saturated their everyday lives. 
they were just alive. But as they lived, they often found their thoughts dwelling on the subject of fire. White American Protestants in the 18th and 19th centuries were especially preoccupied with the fires of hell, imagery that dates back at least to the time of the New Testament, but which came to occupy a particularly outsized place in the rhetoric of early American evangelists. These great awakeners, like the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards, faced the task of explaining how it was that a kind and loving God could concoct such a nasty torture chamber for his most beloved subjects. In his 1741 sermon, Sinners at the Hands of an Angry God, Edwards answered that the fires of hell originate in fact in the human heart. Quote, the corruption of the heart of man is immoderate and boundless in its fury, Edwards averred, and while wicked men live here, it is like fire pent up by God's restraints, whereas if it were let loose, it would set on fire the course of nature. That fiery loosening is precisely what happens in hell, Edwards concluded. God simply removes his restraint from the sinful impulses of the damned, and immediately they turn the soul into fiery oven or a furnace of fire and brimstone. Edwards owned at least three slaves in his lifetime, including Venus, who was 14 when Edwards purchased her in Rhode Island, as well as a boy named Titus and another female slave named Lee. In the spring of 1741, the year that Edwards delivered sinners in the hands of an angry god, a wave of fire swept the British colony of New York. Authorities, through coerced testimony and a sprinkle of their own imaginations, convinced themselves that a slave revolt was underway. Some of them must have remembered the revolt of April 6, 1712, when about 20 black slaves set fire to a building in Lower Manhattan and then attacked the white colonists who came to try to put out the blaze. It remains unclear whether enslaved revolutionaries had hatched a similar plot in 1741, but that didn't stop the colonial courts from burning 13 alleged black conspiracists to death that summer, along with dozens of other black people and white collaborators executed in other ways. There was nothing extraordinary about that. Slave burning was a widespread colonial practice including in the Northeast. In 1713, New Jersey had passed a law authorizing the burning of law-breaking slaves at the stake. In 1859, two weeks after John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry, the black abolitionist Henry Highland Garnet wrote that, quote, a box of matches in the pocket of every slave, and then slavery would be set right. Slavery in the U.S. did ultimately meet its demise in an immense conflagration, what Abraham Lincoln called the nation's fiery trial. As the historian Daniel Imiroir has shown, cities and plantations and human beings were torched across the South, by slaves revolting against their masters, by Union soldiers, and by vindictive Confederates. One slave owner said that he'd burn all his slaves rather than let the Yankees have them but the fire was no longer up to the master class to control. I think that they must have felt these flames already, those pious slavers who expounded on the subtler points of the doctrine of hellfire in the early days of the American Republic. On some level, they understood that the fire they were starting would be impossible to put out, that it would someday consume them and the whole edifice of murder and torture and kidnapping they had built. 
and I think Aaron Bushnell felt it too, working as a lowly IT guy in the bowels of the U.S. Air Force, the mightiest incendiary device that humans have ever constructed. It is the same inferno that raged then, the one that has never ceased to rage, the one lit by all our sin and cruelty and lust for violence. Never sated, all devouring. Perhaps this is why he did it. He was already burning. I guess we all are. God gave Noah the rainbow sign. No more water. The fire next time. And here's a piece by Caitlin Johnstone, published at CaitlinJohnST.one. You have already taken a side on Israel-Palestine, whether you know it or not, whether you admit it or not. You have either consciously chosen to side with the people who are being continually massacred by Israel, or you have consciously chosen to side with Israel. Or you have sided with Israel by being, quote, neutral. Or you have sided with Israel by being indifferent. As Desmond Tutu said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. The powerful oppressors are more than happy for you to be, quote, neutral. The ones who are already in control want as little scrutiny as possible. From their position, the fewer people who are looking at them and evaluating whether their actions are right or wrong, the better. Your neutrality just means they get to keep doing what they want to do. It's perfectly okay not to have an opinion about everything. It's fine not to take in a position on every political issue that comes across your screen. Most people have way too many opinions, and most of them are about silly and unworthy things. The onslaught that is happening in Gaza is not one such instance, though. Taking a stand against genocide is what having opinions on things is for. Opposing mass-scale human butchery and ethnic cleansing is the fundamental bare minimum position that all other political positions should follow from. If you can't take a stand against that, what are you even doing here? How have you been spending your brief time on this planet? How have you managed to make it to this point in life without maturing to the barest minimum standard possible? You might think Israel-Palestine is too complicated for you to take a stand on. It isn't. It's very simple. Many of the small, specific details are complex, but the overall reality they form is simple. An apartheid state has spent five months butchering and starving the population it has marginalized in a way that advances that state's long-standing political agendas of ethnically cleansing that population from the land. You might think you're too cool or too evolved or too smart to take a side on Israel-Palestine. You are not. You have already taken a side, whether you admit it or not. You might think Israel-Palestine is too many gray areas and uncertainties for you to legitimately take a side. It does not. 
the endless stream of footage of skeletal bodies and children ripped apart by military explosives over the last five months makes it very clear that this issue has a right side and a wrong side, and you are already standing on one of them. By all means, refuse to take sides on other issues. Not taking a side is entirely legitimate when it comes to most issues people are wasting their breath bickering about. But not this one. When it comes to Gaza, reality demands a position from you. That doesn't mean you have to side with the Palestinians if you don't want to. You're a sovereign human being. It's up to you. But don't kid yourself about being neutral. At least be real with yourself that by refusing to pick a position, you are licking the boot of a nuclear-armed ethnostate that is backed by the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. If you can't be real about anything else, at least be real about that. And finally for this episode, here's a piece written by Britt Monroe, published at therealnews.com, originally published at Mondo Weiss. Israel's legitimacy in the West is not long for this world. There is no way to come back from what we have seen over the past five months, no way to collectively forget the bombings of hospitals, the children white with shock and plaster, the nurses shot by snipers while at work in operating theaters, the amputations without anesthesia, the toddlers screaming for their martyred parents, the starving pregnant women, the men paraded naked and bound, the elders imprisoned and tortured, the bodies of loved ones eaten by animals, the babies crying out in pain because they have not been fed and will not be fed, the bodies of infants decomposing in ICU incubators. We will never unsee the teenagers camped out to block aid trucks, the soldiers parading with Palestinian women's underwear, the celebratory TikToks of Israelis detonating university buildings and schools, the politicians calling publicly to eliminate everything and to kill them all. Last December, after a U.S. citizen self-immolated in front of the Israeli embassy in Atlanta in a protest that was swiftly buried by the mass media, the consul general of the embassy called it an act of hate against Israel, claiming that the sanctity of life is our highest value. We laugh at this statement. We laugh because if we do not laugh, we will scream. Aaron Bushnell screamed free Palestine as his body burned outside the Israeli embassy in D.C. on the 25th of February, 2024. The force of his act has stirred the deepest parts of those of us struggling against Israeli-U.S. genocide from within the heart of the empire. We will echo his screams and we will amplify them a million times over and from all corners of the earth. In death, Bushnell joins those martyred while resisting within Palestine. Not only every resistance fighter, but every civilian killed. On the day of Bushnell's protest, almost 100 people were martyred in Palestine, including Mohammed El Zayeg, just 60 days old, who died of starvation. We honor them all. What Bushnell's act revealed, as he knew it must, 
was that Zionist lies are crumbling. On the day that he burnt himself alive, Aaron Bushnell wore his army fatigues and declared himself an active member of the U.S. Air Force, not because he wanted to reclaim American nationalism. He was a self-declared anarchist with plans to leave the Air Force, but because he understood the power of where he stood in relation to U.S. empire. What his act declared so unflinchingly was that even in the heart of the empire, a 25-year-old white man, an active member of the U.S. military, raised in a Zionist household, the lies no longer hold. We cannot ignore what this means, despite a global propaganda machine working overtime to tell us that targeting hospitals is not targeting hospitals and killing civilians is not killing civilians. Awareness of Israel's crimes is spreading like wildfire across the globe. This is due in no small part to the tenacity of the Palestinian armed resistance, which has managed to defy containment by Israel's 40-mile-long iron wall and continues to resist an Israeli invasion on the ground. At the same time, Palestinian artists, writers, journalists, and academics have worked tirelessly to dismantle Zionist colonization of the global, particularly Western, imagination with story, with song, with music, and with art. This resistance in all its forms is having ripple effects. Since October 7, people have continued to flood the streets in every nation with chants of in our thousands, in our millions, we are all Palestinians. Josephine Gabot, a former member of the U.S. military, said on Monday at a vigil for Bushnell that, quote, I don't think this is going to be the last of our military members resisting. I feel like there are many, many errands out there. Who will speak for them? Israel's lies have long lacked legitimacy among the peoples of the global south, and particularly the Middle East. But today, Taylor Swift fans show up to protest, holding signs declaring Swifties for Palestine. In videos of lawyers proclaiming the Israeli occupation existentially illegal, before the International Court of Justice go viral on Twitter. Palestinian journalists reporting from Gaza have bigger online followings than the U.S. president, and buildings in the West are emblazoned with their images and quotes. In a statement responding to Bushnell's protest, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, stated, quote, Bushnell's act indicates that the status of the Palestinian cause, especially in American circles, is becoming more deeply entrenched in the global conscience and reveals the truth of the Zionist entity as a cheap colonial tool in the hands of savage imperialism. Israel's legitimacy is crumbling and it is taking the U.S. empire with it. This is not to suggest that Israel is pulling the strings. Rather, it shows how far the U.S. is prepared to go before it will risk its hegemony in the region. The refusal of all but a handful of states to join the U.S.-led coalition Operation Prosperity Guardian to defeat Yemen in the Red Sea. Notable among absentees was Saudi Arabia, which has since joined the BRICS group of nations alongside China, Russia, and Iran, was telling. Increasingly, the imperialism of the Western media is being exposed, and voices from the global south locating these lies within much longer histories of Western colonial violence are being heard in new ways by a new generation. In a talk he gave on October 21, 2023, historian Elan Pape stated, quote, 
Before October, I wrote an article saying this is the beginning of the end of Zionism. After last week, in fact, I'm even more convinced. As happened in apartheid South Africa, this is a very dangerous period. The regime fights for its life. Historically, I have no doubt that this is what we are experiencing. We are experiencing cruelty and brutality because a certain regime is losing it, not because it is winning, but because it is losing. Israel's attacks on Iran and Lebanon attempting to lure the U.S. into a broader regional war are another sign of that desperation. When he stood in front of the Israeli embassy on Monday engulfed by dark orange balls of flame, Aaron Bushnell was choosing to embody his refusal of this brutality. Quote, I will no longer be complicit in genocide, he had explained moments earlier. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people are experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. What Bushnell did was an act of fierce, principled love in a situation of extreme desperation, in which the U.S. political machinery and Zionist media have cornered those of us who do not wish to be complicit in genocide into an increasingly restricted space. Bushnell's act will be, and has been, misrepresented by the imperialist mass media. This is no surprise. As with Mohammed Bouazizi, the Tunisian vendor who burned himself to death in protest against the corruption of the Tunisian government, they will attempt to strip Bushnell's death of its political content, to pathologize his act as somehow the result of individual mental illness, as if that were in itself antithetical to agency, to deem it a personal tragedy. Even within the movement, Organizers have responded to Bushnell's death by claiming that we must act collectively and not individually, lamenting his act as misguided and desperate. But what Bushnell's protest demonstrated was that we are always, already collective, and that it is because of this that the truth of Israel's violence will not be suppressed. This truth will resonate from within the deepest cracks of empire, a testament to the survival of that which binds us to those resisting in Palestine. It will appear in a brilliant burst of light, in millions of bodies flooding into the streets, in a chorus of voices thundering Bushnell's words and those of every person resisting in Palestine since 1948. Free Palestine. Free Palestine. Free Palestine. In every struggle, there are points of inflection. There are occurrences and instances that shift the trajectory, that change the path, sometimes subtly, sometimes dramatically, um, towards or away from a desired outcome. Aaron Bushnell's act, Aaron Bushnell's self-immolation at the Israeli embassy is one of those inflection points in the genocide of, of Gaza, the genocide of the Palestinians, as there have been many other inflection points. Um, this one will, will resonate with certain people in certain quarters 
And I think it is up to us to make sure that this point of inflection pushes that trajectory the right way. Because there's always risk that any of these factors, any of these points, any of these activities and actions end up pushing things in the wrong way. Aaron Bushnell had a important and powerful voice that he extinguished in this final loud act of screaming, of shouting that Palestine must be free. Because that voice is silenced, in order for this act to really push that trajectory in the right direction, that act, that, that final last shout and demand must awaken those voices that have so far been silent. Those voices that have been watching, those individuals that have been feeling the pain and feeling the suffering, but not taking the next step to action. And if Aaron's silencing of his own voice can awaken hundreds, thousands of those other voices, then it can move things in a better direction. Not only those silent voices, but those other folks who have been speaking up, but not so loudly, um, not taking advantage of every opportunity to join the struggle that demands human rights and respect for the Palestinian people. If all of those folks that hear, that heard Aaron's cries, that hear us share Aaron's story, if they can speak a little louder, if they can take one more step, if they can do one more action, we can turn the tide. That'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. For episodes and news about all of my podcasts, you can follow me in the Fediverse at Moving Train Media at Collectiva.social. You can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. As one of the earlier stories mentioned, when Bruce self-immolated at the Supreme Court on Earth Day to draw attention to the climate crisis and the massive lack of sufficient action taken by our government and many other governments. And here with our moment of Zen is Jesse Jett with Consider It a Win. Thanks for listening. For the benefit of the listener, I would like to commit this piece to the memory of Mr. Wynn Allen Bruce. Our hope is growing hollow and our patience wearing thin. The sun is being swallowed by a dusk that grows within. 
The heavy slab is sliding shut. Soon light won't filter in. So if you choose to be the torch, consider it a win. Before they censor every thought through sensors in your skin. Before they start the fire, though they'll never mention flint. Before our hell is frozen and the ice as thick as sin. If you have heart to bear the torch, consider it a win. If you had voice to protest but were drowned out by the din, and you should choose to rise above as embers on the wind, go smear the court with soot and carry ash on swirling limb. Go and fill the lungs of bastards that they know the smell of him. Burn bright and be the beacon that will light us home again. Should you so choose to be the torch, consider that a win.'"